Well, I have a word for you this morning, just one word to think about, a word I bet you haven't even used in the last week, bet you haven't even used in the last month, maybe. Uh, maybe kids use this, you know, behold, you know, uh, but, uh, but it's by no means uh, a common word for us. <clears throat> if you think about what the word behold means, it means to look at something uh, to gaze on something, to concentrate on something. But the way I believe it's being used in the place we're going to go to in a second, the way I want you to think about it this morning, uh, is to think of the idea of pause, to stop for a moment, just, just take a breath. And take it in, whatever it is, and then marvel over it. Pause, really take it in, and then marvel over it. Now, this word, if you notice, it has a comma after it. I know you didn't come this morning for a grammar lesson, but it's really helpful here. It's like, it's like art. Think of it like art. <clears throat> and the comma just tells you, okay, behold, pause, now here it is. And this is the statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the statement we're going to look at this morning. But I want to give it a little context. It was uttered by a guy named John. It's found in the Gospel of John, a different John. Uh, and in John chapter 1, a guy named John, who is commonly known as John the Baptist. Guess why he's known as John the Baptist? He was a baptizer. Uh, so people would come out to him, but he was really, instead of John the Baptist, he really was John the prophet, and a prophet, if you're not familiar with that, a, a, he was a Jewish prophet, and a prophet often was given to God's people uh, because a, a special season was about to come upon them, and the prophet sort of announced that season, something's about to happen, and John the Baptist comes along a few years before uh, Jesus, and he starts making this uh, announcement that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. And so here's this strange-looking guy out in this faraway place outside of Jerusalem, and he becomes a sensation. All kinds of people start going to him, and he's constantly talking about the, the fact that at any moment, God's Messiah, God's rescuer, which we've been waiting for forever, is going to show up. And lo and behold, he does, and he says to the people around, and it appears that just a few people really heard him and took him seriously, he says, behold, when he sees Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, so frequently, one little statement in the Bible has a whole bunch of information in it. So it's my job to unpack this this morning. So we're just going to briefly look at a couple of the words in here. Behold a lamb, the lamb. Now, when you think of a lamb, you think of something that's innocent. Almost always in every culture, that's the picture sometimes of, of, of innocence, a lamb. But in the Jewish culture, it wasn't just innocence that was pictured in a lamb. It was sacrifice. And if you're not familiar with the, the Jewish religion that sort of set things up for Christ and Christianity, uh, what is all this sort of weird thing going on in the Bible of lambs being killed, all kinds of animals being killed. What is that all about? Well, the Bible speaks constantly about the fact that God is holy. 
Now, when it, when it says that God is holy, that's his very nature, that he's holy. It doesn't mean that he's uh, a kind of religious snob who's better than everybody else, which he is, by the way, uh, who's better than everybody else and looks down on everybody. That's not what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. Maybe a better way to understand it is to think when you hear the word, hear the phrase, the sentence, God is holy, think God is life. So the opposite of holiness is really death. Every violation of our creator's directives, every violation of the directives, the commands that we as human beings have received from our creator, every violation of those directives is life-taking and beauty-destroying. And if this injustice, if this evil isn't dealt with, then death wins. And so God sets up a system, life for life. And yet God in his mercy allows an innocent animal to substitute for human life. Though, let me just give you a little parenthesis and a setup for what's coming. All of those innocent animals that were uh, judged so that people wouldn't be judged, they were, as, they were substitutes for the people, they only temporarily held back God's judgment because ultimately those animals were not adequate substitutes. All they could do was temporarily postpone God's judgment. So behold the lamb. Behold sin. What is sin? Well, I wonder what you think of when you think of sin. Usually people think of sins, S-I-N-S. Notice that's not what's here. You see, sins are those, those handful of really bad things that we do. That's generally the description uh, of sins. That's why the Bible frequently, in key places like this, does not use the word sins, plural, but sins, singular, because it's speaking about the root problem, the very problem with the human heart that creates all the sins, S-I-N-S. And so this is speaking about the very nature of our human heart that's beneath all the behaviors of the human heart, a nature that's self-promoting, a nature that naturally wants to be independent of God as an authority over us. That's what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about sin. And all the evil in the world flows from this human nature. And that human nature, that sin nature, is not just the few really bad things we do. That human nature is a spectrum of not only the really bad things that human beings do, but also the respected things that human beings do, the accepted things that human beings do, the attitudes of our hearts. So that's what the Bible speaks about when it speaks about sin. Uh, last week I was speaking with someone who uh, has been... Uh, talking to a, a co-worker, uh, this co-worker over the period of the last several years. Uh, he and I have been praying for this guy's uh, co-worker, and he, uh, he has come from a, a sort of non-believing background, really now sees the purpose of God, sees that he, he needs God, but the one thing he cannot swallow is he cannot swallow the fact that uh, he's a bad person, that he somehow is a sinner, I mean, he's basically been a good, decent, moral guy his whole life. But at the end of the day, the challenge for him is going to be, 
Will I trust in my own self-evaluation or the only one who really has the ability to truly evaluate me, who has said we've all fallen short? So that's what we think of when we think of sin. And then the beautiful thing is that sin is taken away. That's what this lamb does. He takes away the power of sin, the presence of sin, the penalty of sin. The Lamb of God takes away the penalty of sin. All the guilt that we've ever earned in life is transferred from us to Jesus Christ and all of his righteousness is transferred to us in an instantaneous moment when we surrender our lives to him. That's, he removes all the penalty of sin, but he also removes the very power of sin. When the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of Christ comes into you, he begins this beautifying operation in you over the course of many years. Most of the time, you can't see it as well as God can, but he's in the process of transforming you, of removing bit by bit the power of sin. And then one day, because of the resurrection, the very presence of sin will be gone from us and from this world. So for just a moment, behold, pause, take it in and marvel over it. Can you imagine? Maybe you can't. Maybe it's so hard to imagine. Can you imagine a world, a world where there is no guilt, no anxiety, no fear, no uncertainty, no death? Take it away forever. That's what we celebrate today, even as we celebrate the resurrection. This sin is just completely taken away. But I really want to concentrate on just two little words that almost are missed in this sentence that are profound words. Uh, that actually is a mistake there. It's not the word God, it's the word of. Don't you like the way I did that uh, there? It reminds me of something I discovered in my workshop today, but I won't talk about that. So... Uh, it's a, I won't talk about it. Don't talk about it, Rick. Okay, so <laughs> even though I've got you all curious right now. Um, you need to understand that when we come to the scene of Jesus raising from the dead, we are coming halfway through a, or really more, much more than halfway through a very long, long story. Let me take a quick survey. How many of you at some time in your life have watched one of the Star Wars movies? Okay, the majority of you. Uh, did you know that there's now 12 Star Wars movies and nine TV series on the Star Wars? They, they're, uh, they span almost 50 years now. Uh, now, imagine if you'd never watched any of them and you just jumped right into it. You could probably figure some, something, you know, you could, even if you never knew all the others, you could kind of pick up on it, but you'd be missing so much more of the whole story. You see, when John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there was a freight train full of information packed in this one statement, which is why I had Robin read that very strange passage for Easter. <laughs> so if you have a Bible, I think it might also be in your bulletin. Look at Genesis chapter 15. Or is it Genesis... 15 or is it 22 that's it? All right, well, we'll go there. Just hold on. Uh, so Genesis 15, if you want to go there for just a minute. Uh, if you have a Bible, if not, you can just listen in. Uh, this first book of the Bible, written thousands of years before Jesus, 
In fact, the events took place thousands of years before Jesus is on the scene. And in this passage, something interesting is happening. Now, a lot is going on here in this passage. There's a lot of weird stuff going on in this passage here. And one of the questions that we might ask is, who's this guy, Abram, who becomes Abraham later on? And, uh, and why did God pick Abram? And the answer is, I don't know. Honestly, no one knows. Don't you see? That's the whole point. He could have picked anybody. It wasn't anything about Abraham that caused God to pick Abraham. It's just that God did. That's how God did things. No explanation. He picked Abraham. And he made a promise to him. He said, Abram, I am going to raise up a great nation from you, and through, all the, and through that nation, I will bless all the other nations that ever are or ever will be. Wow, what a, what a promise. So then, here he is. He's old, and he still doesn't have a single child. And God gave him that promise? Now, I don't know about you, but I'd start wondering if that promise was even ever going to come true. I mean, I may be lucky to die with one child. You call that a great nation? So here he is, and that's why he says, I'm going to give you the, all of this land to which uh, Abraham rightfully says um, in verse 8, Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? Can't you give me something, something that gives me a little bit of certainty? And then he goes through this strange ritual with them, and he tells them to go get a bunch of animals, cut them in half, and then he falls asleep, and while he's falling asleep, this fire passes between these animals. Now, there's two things going on here. In this weird scene here where, there, where there's these animals cut in half and fire passes through them, one thing that's going on is it's symbolically representing what's about to happen to this people called the Jews. They don't even exist yet. But eventually Abraham will have a, a huge uh, family uh, through his uh, grandchild, and uh, they will eventually go down to Egypt. They will become slaves there. And uh, they will go through darkness, which is the picture that's being described here. And uh, these birds of prey come and attack the animals. They will have enemies in Egypt. But the presence of God, the fire, will be with his people. So that's one thing. It's symbolizing their future. There's actually something else going on here that is very interesting. And it's down in verse 18. We're told in, in uh, 1518 that God made a covenant with Abram. He made a covenant. On the day the Lord God made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I'll give this land. And there is a little detail here that, you, that we'll miss in, the, in, in English, but it literally says in verse 18, on that day the Lord cut a covenant. On that day the Lord cut a covenant. This was a covenant ritual that was being enacted here. In fact, it was something that was fairly normal. If you wanted to have a contract with someone else, you cut up some animals and you both passed between these cut up animals as a sign to say, curse be on me, the same thing that will happen to me that happened to these animals if I don't keep the agreement. You got that? This is the transaction that's, that's happening here. This is why it's remarkable. Who passes through the animals? The Lord and the Lord only. 
Abraham doesn't pass through much, which would have been typical. Both parties pass through. God and God only passes through these animals. And what makes this remarkable is this. Here is the God over all of creation, over all that is, the God who controls all there is, and he binds himself in a covenant, in a contract, in a promise to a human being. And then all of God's future actions throughout all of human history are tied to this covenant promise. Everything that happens to every single person in every single nation in the world in all of human history is tied to this singular covenant promise. And because God alone passed through these animals, the fulfillment of that covenant promise is entirely on God. Are you still with me? Have I lost you yet? Okay. One more passage, if you think that passage was weird. Genesis chapter 22. And you're thinking, what's this got to do with Easter? That's the whole idea. We're building up to that. Genesis chapter 22, which is the passage in your bulletin. After these things, God tested Abraham, who's now Abraham. He's changed his name from Abram to Abraham as the promise is being fulfilled. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I, take your own son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Finally, in his old age, Abraham has the first proof of the promise, this son Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and do what? Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of, one of the mountains of which I shall tell you? That's not a question, by the way. It's just a statement. So Abraham rose early in the morning. That alone should be a sermon just right there. Saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and he went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they both, so they went both of them together. Now, there's more going on here than I have time to explain, that's for sure. And at first glance, if you're not familiar with the Bible, in fact, even if you are familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking, man, this Abraham guy's a religious psychopath, or if he isn't, God is. But, like someone has said, first impressions are almost always stupid ones. Uh, so let's start over again. After these things, God, what? Tested Abraham. What does God do when he tests someone? Well, he sets up a situation in which Abraham had to lean on God like never before. That's what God does when he tests us. He sets up a situation in which Abraham had to lean on God like never before. And the outcome of those testing situations is that Abraham's confidence in God would go through the roof and other people would be impressed to follow him because of it. That's what's really going on here. As you, as you read on to the story, you'll realize it was never God's intention for Abraham to actually sacrifice his son. But here's the thing. Abraham is not the hero of this story. 
The Bible is not a book about faithful heroes. The Bible is a book about God's faithfulness. And God, in this case, does something amazing. Verse 7, Isaac said to his father Abraham, and I'm going to read this with a little bit of emphasis to give you the idea of what was really meant to come out of this passage. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And now Abraham's the one who says, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. By the way, God knew Abraham feared God. God needed Abraham to know that Abraham feared God. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram. He had offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Did you get the idea there? There Three times, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. We should actually write that verse over all Bibles. Not just Holy Bible, but the Lord will provide. The whole Bible is a document of that. Again, it's not uh, about the greatness of Abraham's faith. It's about the fact that God is the initiator in all of humanity. God is the one who went after us. It's that God makes a promise to humanity, and it's that God keeps that promise, and then God provides what's needed for that promise to come true. Thus, over and over in the Bible. Genesis 22 is not about the greatness of Abraham's faith. It's about the contrast between Abraham's son, who was spared, and God's son, who was not. God himself provided, and God provided himself. That's the story of the Bible. And that's why perhaps the most important word in this whole thing is that little word right there. Behold the lamb, not a lamb. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember the principle life for life? Remember the idea that animals only temporarily held back God's judgment? Humanity was guilty. And so, ultimately, it required human life to pay for the injustice that human beings did. But humanity had to pay, but humanity couldn't pay because they were disqualified. You cannot take a filthy rag and make something clean. So, what was needed? Do you see where I'm going now? 
What was needed was a human life who was also a qualified life, an innocent life. Only an innocent human life could wipe out the filth. And so God, the innocent one, became human and became a sacrifice. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So after beholding all of these words, I want to give you actually two letters today that are going to visualize everything I've said, right? Here we go. The, the letter N. Just think about this concept for just a moment. Virtually every human relationship and every human religion can be fit into this one little letter. If you meet certain conditions, then you receive certain deserved rewards. Virtually every religion follows this, this pattern. Every single one, all the aberrations of them do. And virtually every human relationship has a, has a set of expectations and conditions in it. So it's no wonder that when we think of us and God, we think in terms of this letter N. We don't ever think of the letter N. But we have this kind of relationship with God. But you've just seen that's not what's going on in the Bible. It's actually you is a better letter. And that's not because I went to the you. Uh, it's because it's God who takes the initiative. You receive what you don't deserve, and then you respond in grateful devotion. This is called grace, by the way. It's completely backwards. It's one of the hardest things to get used to in life. The idea that when God does something good to you, he doesn't expect you to pay him back. And, and there's no reason why God even does something good for you. It's not because you earned it. God comes down to take us up. God becomes one of us that we might become one with God. It's wildly unnatural, this idea of grace. And this, by the way, is the backdrop. Everything I've been saying this morning is the backdrop to the resurrection. Let me show you what I mean. Behold, God made a promise thousands of years ago to a guy named Abraham to become the father of many nations, not the father of a nation, but the father of all the nations. So what's happening today? Today, there are more followers of Jesus Christ from almost every single tribe, tongue, and nation than ever before. More people from more ethnicities have come to Christ in the last hundred years than the previous 1900 years. God made a promise, and God is keeping that promise. Promise made, promise kept. He keeps that promise, not because humanity keeps delivering on the contract, because who's the contract with? God and his son. The two people that can keep the contract. And we get in on the blessing. Promise kept, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The qualified one becomes the sacrificed one. And as a result, he forever takes away the sin of the world. But then there's finally the promise proven, which is the resurrection. Uh, there is within this promise, you've seen it already, not only was Abraham promised to be the father of many nations, he was promised a land. And that land goes beyond the border of modern-day Israel. That land is the entire planet. That land is what's called paradise. And you see, the resurrection is the big bang of a brand new world. 
Jesus is the first fruits of that brand new world, the Bible says. He's already making all things new. It's already begun. When Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is right in front of you. It has commenced. It has started. And then he taught us to pray what's becoming truer and truer every day. Thy kingdom come, which means what? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the pivot point of human history, the resurrection. But it's not just what happened when Jesus physically rose from the dead. It's all that history that led up to this point. So let me give the last word to um, a special guest, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Some of you may have known who he is. Some of you may not. Uh, Dietrich is a German, grew up uh, in Germany, and at age 14, he announced he was one of, let's see, one of eight children. He announced to his parents at age 14 he was going to become a theologian. They were not happy about that because they were not happy with the church. Uh, But nonetheless, he plowed on to do that. Uh, Shortly after um, seminary, he went to work in Spain. There, for the first time in his life, this privileged kid encountered poverty like he'd never seen before. Not long after that, he went and did a a pastorate in Harlem, New York. And there, for the first time in his life, he saw racism like never before. Meanwhile, back in his home country, Germany, things were happening over there. One man in particular was rising to fame. You know his name is Adolf Hitler. And this guy was convincing lots of people that in order to purify this nation, we also had to purge this nation. What's really sad is more than 50% of all Christians followed him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a bunch of other people decided this was not right at all. And more than anything else, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor. Now, if you're here this morning... I want Dietrich to speak to you for just a second. If you're here this morning and you want to be delivered from this N-shaped life and know the experience of a U-shaped life where you're in relationship with God and you are receiving benefits you don't deserve from him and responding in grateful devotion instead of this N-shaped life which you know you can never live up to, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, if you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. If you're still breathing, you can get off that train. And you can do something else that Dietrich said. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And Dietrich knew that because it was after seminary that, G- that Dietrich Bonhoeffer realized he wasn't a Christian and gave his life to Christ. He knew a whole lot about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. And so you can surrender to Jesus today. It's really this simple. Just listen to the words I'm about to pray. And if you agree with them, just silently pray along. Our Father, hear my cry. I know I am a sinner. Over and over again, I've seen it. I've fallen short. In my most honest moments, I know this. I've become convinced I cannot save myself. And so I appeal to the sacrifice of Jesus. Save me, enter me, 
I surrender my life to you now and look forward to being with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 1944. Dietrich was engaged to Maria. But he wasn't just engaged to Maria. He was also engaged in something else that might surprise you. And he was engaged in a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. And he got discovered along with others. And the Gestapo came and took him early in 44, put him in prison. Later in 44, they moved him to a concentration camp, a much worse existence than that. And then on this day, April 9th, 1945, they let him out to be executed. Bonhoeffer said this while he was in prison, these letters to Maria. God does not give us everything we want, but he does fulfill all his promises. Leading us along the best and straightest paths to himself. And then he said, the fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. Have you ever thought about that? And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too will be raised on the day of judgment. Which is probably why as he was being led out, according to an eyewitness report from a a fellow prisoner of his, Dietrich Bonhoeffer turned to this friend and he said these very simple words. This is the end for me, comma, the beginning of life. In that little comma is this sermon, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Lord, only because the tomb is empty is there certainty in our hearts. Christ is so alive right now, so reigning right now, and the resurrection is the first of a multitude of fulfillments that are happening to us and for us and for our future all because you are the God who provides for us. You make a promise, you provide for that promise, you keep that promise, and we are the beneficiaries of it. Send us out of here today beholding that with wonder in Jesus' name.